Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Prophets, and here we'll be having our second discussion on Daniel chapter 2. If you are in the Chicago area, we will be there April 16th and 17th of this weekend with a regional course on what should we hope for. We have another regional course on April 23rd and 24th over in Cary, North Carolina, and that course will be on how should we worship. And then looking forward to the month of May, May 10th through 13th, we have our intensive course here in Birmingham, Alabama on the Christian art of dying with Kimball Cornu. You can find more information for all of these events there in the show notes, and we hope to see you soon. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Daniel chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is running the recording equipment, making sure that everything stays on track. And he'll be editing and smoothing out the podcast for your listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for your interest in the Theopolis podcast. Thank you for uh, your support of Theopolis uh, in your prayers and in your financial gifts. Uh, We're very grateful for that. And we're very grateful for your tuning in and listening to our podcast. We're in the middle of a series, a large series, a larger series on prophetic literature. And within that series in prophetic literature, we're toward the beginning of a series on the book of Daniel. Uh, We've done an introductory episode on Daniel. Uh, We've done a study of chapter one. And then last time we looked at the first part of chapter two, which is the narrative setup uh, having to do with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The contents of the dream haven't been revealed yet. We stopped about the middle of the chapter and Daniel is about to reveal the contents of the dream, which was the, the challenge that Nebuchadnezzar laid before his own magicians and sorcerers. He asked them to tell him the dream and then tell him the interpretation. And Daniel is going to do that in the second half of the chapter. Uh, that's the part that we'll be looking at. Let me say a couple of things about the uh, uh, the chapter as a whole, and then um, uh, some preliminary comments about the second half of the chapter. It does seem like Daniel 2 is set up in a kind of neat chiasm. Uh, the beginning of the chapter, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream, of course, and then you have this fairly lengthy dialogue between Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors, the sorcerers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the conjurers, that fourfold collection of advisors. So you have an an audience before the king at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Later in the chapter, toward the end of the chapter, you have Daniel standing before the king. So Daniel takes takes the position of these four groups of advisors, and he is able to perform what they can't perform. He's able to tell the dream. He's able to tell the interpretation what the earlier ones are not able to do. So he's taking the place of those advisors. So those two court scenes, audiences before the king are at either end of the chapter. And then uh, we have an exchange between Daniel and Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard in verse 14 and 15. He asks for more time. Uh, and then after the center in 20, verses 25, verse 25, Arioch reappears. So you have the, that frame around the center. And the turning point in the center of the whole chapter is the the prayer of Daniel and his three friends within the house of Daniel that's answered by a nighttime vision that is uh, that's given, and then Daniel's prayer and uh, psalm of praise for this revelation of the mystery. Uh, that prayer is at the center. It's uh, again Daniel goes into his house. The Lord has set up a house of prayer 
he set up uh, a human house. The four corners of the human house are Daniel and his three friends, and they form a kind of temple within Babylon that functions as a house of prayer that is going to upend and disturb what's happening in Babylon. Just a, a, a couple other general comments about the uh, dream and its interpretation. It does seem like we're working in general in, a, in the in the Babel zone of imagery. Babel and Babylon are two different words in English, but the same word in Hebrew. And so when Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, that's in Hebrew, it's the same word that's used for Babel back in Genesis 11. And we have a similar kind of theme here. Babylon is at Babel, rather. The men of Babel tried to build a tower that would reach to heaven. We have a a huge statue, a monumental statue in Daniel chapter 2. The God of heaven comes down to inspect what's happening on the plain of Shinar. He comes down to inspect, inspect that tower and then scatters the builders. Uh, Here, the God of heaven comes down to Daniel to interpret this dream of the statue. But within the statue, the the statue is destroyed and it's reduced to powder. And then the powder is driven away and scattered by the wind. So you have the same kind of Babel motifs going on here. The effort to build a a giant kingdom, a a giant tower, a place that uh, connects heaven and earth apart from the God of heaven uh, is doomed, and that's going to be destroyed. And that's what uh, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar is doing. I think last time we cut off about verse 24 or 25 or thereabouts, didn't we? And so Daniel now is brought in by Arioch and presented. And when Nebuchadnezzar says to him initially in verse 26, are you able to interpret the dream? Um, Daniel starts in a slightly ambiguous way. He starts saying, no wise man, enchanter, magician, etc., can show the king the mystery that the king has. Uh, and you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's blood starting to boil as Daniel is introducing things like this, because this is just what the wise men have started to say and why he threatened them with a death sentence in the first place. But obviously, Daniel then sort of having set him up like that segues on and, and makes it very clear that there is, there is a God in heaven um, who reveals mysteries. And um, Daniel, I guess, is offering him himself as the conduit you know he, he is saying i know the god who has given you the dream in the first place and that's why he has got the missing part of the puzzle as it were mm-hmm. one of daniel's opening comments verse 28 is that uh, the god in heaven who reveals mysteries has let nebuchadnezzar know what's going to take place at the end of the days or in the latter days as it's sometimes translated and I think that that phrase is important in Daniel. It comes up, or some variation of it comes up in other places in Daniel. And it's um, that's an important, I think it relates to what uh, James said in the last episode when he talked about the the redating of uh, events in Israel's history by reference to the regnal years of Gentile kings. That's a feature of what what's happening in the latter days, at the end of days. There's a phase, a phase rather, of Israel's history uh, that's under the dominion of Gentile kings. Uh, and uh, Daniel is describing that as the latter days. That That's the language that's picked up by the New Testament. And I think sometimes in the New Testament is referring to this entire period. The latter days in in Daniel begin with Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's the head of gold on the statue. And so this latter day period that's going to be the times of the Gentiles begins with him and it stretches until the coming of the kingdom of God. That entire period is the latter days of Israel, the latter days of Israel's history, uh, and I think the New Testament is picking up on that and sometimes specifically talking about the the end of the latter days, the end of this period. Uh, but that's often misinterpreted as being a, that phrase is misinterpreted as being a reference to 
uh, the period just before the the end of the the physical creation, the end just before the final judgment. And usually in the Bible, that's not what it means. It's referring to this either to this period of Israel's history or to the very end of that period of Israel's history uh, with the coming of Christ and the work of the apostles. And suddenly Nebuchadnezzar has an interest in an investment in these latter days. I mean, he is his future has now not through a deliberate attempt of his, but has now become inextricably intertwined with the future of God's people and with the work of God um, in and through him, which is a, a fascinating detail which has taken place here. I mean, um, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't been conscious that he's involving himself in this whole um, mystery, but as he um, uh, has conquered Israel, he has become just bound up in it, whether he likes it or not. Mm-hmm. It, even more than that, what do we make of the dream and the interpretation of uh, the image, which is a human, humiform image, but gold, silver, bronze, iron, clearly some sort of reference to the tabernacle and temple uh, so that um, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom and the kingdoms that follow are in some sense now the house of Yahweh um, and have the same kind of characteristics as like, it's like a transformed tabernacle and temple. So what do we do with that? Well, just as a background point that uh, is implied in what you were saying, Jeff, this is a vertical image mm-hmm. uh, rather than a horizontal one, but uh, that's the tabernacle and temple is, is a human form, mm-hmm. even though it's, it's horizontal, it's kind of a, a human form lying down on the ground. Mm-hmm. And then there, there are various indications of that in the way that different features of the tabernacle and temple are described. Mm-hmm. The architectural features are described in in terms of human uh, human uh, organs and, and, and limbs. Uh, the temple has shoulders, the temple has ribs. And so that kind of language is, is used. Uh, Vern Poitras in his book, The Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses, does a good job of highlighting this aspect of it. So that human form aspect of the temple and tabernacle obviously feeds into the New Testament, our understanding of mm-hmm. Christ as the temple and the church as the temple. Uh, but that's, I think, already embedded in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not out of keeping with that the imagery of the temple to have this kind of pulled up on its feet and stood up vertically rather than horizontally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I was kind of assuming that. And yet the, the right. striking thing here, of course, is that it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Babylonian king or whatever Gentile kings follow him and are represented by silver, bronze, and iron. That's that's uh, pretty different, pretty uh, pretty new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of qualification of the point you're making. I don't want to get back to the point you're making, but I think it is important to see that within this world that is Nebuchadnezzar initially heads and that's headed by these other these other kingdoms, these other emperors, Within that is the Lord has his own house, um, mm-hmm. the house of Daniel, the house that's made up of Daniel and his friends, mm-hmm. the house of Israel that's a community within a- exile, mm-hmm. and the Lord is among them, as the early chapters of Ezekiel show. The glory of the Lord has gone into exile with his people. So um, what, whatever this this image is representing, its image it, it's representing a kind of uh, macro scale house of the Lord within which the Lord's house made up of the Israelites is, uh, is set. So I think that double, mm. 
that double uh, aspect is important. But it, I think it does mean that uh, then that the Gentile empire empires are functioning as a kind of protective structure, a kind of house within which the house of the Lord is built, and it you know that continues right up into the into the into the New Testament. This was one of the themes of our studies in Acts, where uh, the Lord is building His house among the apostles within the larger structure of the Roman Empire, uh, and eventually uh, that uh, uh, in the history of Rome, uh, the house of the Lord uh, ends up uh, kind of taking over, and and Rome is kind of incorporated into the house of the Lord. But you have that same kind of structure that continues from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the time of Jesus. To state the obvious in some senses, but these four metals are obviously different from one another. They represent different kingdoms which have different characteristics, but they're part of one and the same structure. And that structure seems to have come into existence by means of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Israel. So the reason why Medo-Persia, for instance, fits into all this is because it then conquers Babylon and by virtue of that is sort of becoming then the next guardian of of Israel, if we want to put it like that. Um, The final thing that comes into play then, the um, stone, it is striking, no pun intended, that um, it gets rid of this whole um, uh, structure and kind of starts again, you know, so the floor is swept clean and it feels as if it, it is starting and expanding from the same location, so from you might say Israel at least, or at least the ancient Near East outwards, um, but it is then this stone, a, a fundamentally different structure that comes in and replaces the the metallic one. James Jordan observes that as we look through the order of the metals, we might think of it, that uh, many commentators do, as a descent from a more glorious form into more common and lower metals. We could also think of it in terms of a movement out into more powerful and useful metals. If you think about gold, gold is glorious, but iron is something that has been far more serviceable to mankind, far more a means of expression expression of human power and um, dominance within the world. And so this movement can be seen in that way. Also, it can be seen in terms of the order of the tabernacle, as we've already commented, where the inner part is connected with the gold. Then you go out and the fittings are the silver. You have the courtyard with the bronze um, laver and the bronze um, altar. And then you go out into the world further and you have the iron and the other metals. And there seems to be a similar sort of movement here. could also see it in terms of a great construction project that occurred elsewhere at the very beginning of Israel's history, which is, of course, another event on the um, plain of Shinar, which is the building of the Tower of Babel. And here we have an alternative great statue or um, structure that's being elevated. And this is something that the Lord is setting up as um, some sort of great human project, but it's going to be eclipsed by something that the Lord the Lord's own kingdom. One other thing that comes to mind here is the way in which the um, statue starts at the top. I mean, you'd think of it being built up from the ground. Any thoughts on why it begins with the top? Well, I mean, it occurs to me that it could be a 
that could be an indication of its source, that this is the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's house that he's building. You know, the, 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 uh, like the ladder of uh, Jacob's dream, which stretches between heaven and earth and is a heaven stretching down to earth. Uh, and this is the Lord building his house from heaven to earth. I mean, that, that would fit with the imagery also of the, the temple and tabernacle where the, the innermost part is the gold head and then, uh, and which would also be the uppermost. That would be my initial, my initial thought. And on, on the other hand, that when it's, when it's destroyed, the materials are listed in the opposite order. It's uh, destroyed from the ground up as it were before it's blown away. Yeah, there does seem to be this interesting sense in which the kingdoms do coexist because when the foundations are knocked out, they all come tumbling down. And I think in interpreting it, that's something important to bear in mind. We might think of the way that the um, beast is represented in Revelation, having composite features of the various beasts that you see in Daniel chapter 7, um, bringing together the empires that preceded it. I think another thing that's interesting here is the representation of a temporal progression of kingdoms in a spatial image. And it makes Mm -hmm. me wonder about whether Christ's vision in his temptation, seeing all the kingdoms of the earth at a glance, whether it was of this sort of kind, um, seeing the movement through history, not just looking out from a high mountain and seeing things in this particular moment, but seeing the way that they go down through history. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I noticed for the really for the first time, took uh, took careful note of it, the way that the statue is described. I mean, we get so fixated on the four materials that we miss some of the other numerical features and structural features of the statue. So there are four materials, but other than the head, each of the others, ha- each of the other materials represents two different two different parts of the body. So the head is of gold, verse 32. The silver is the breast and the arms, obviously connected, but they're two different, two different uh, parts of the body, body parts that are silver. Belly and thighs are bronze. Legs and feet are iron and partly of clay. That's what verse 33 says. Uh, That's a total of seven different body parts that are mentioned in verses 32 and 33 that are distributed through these four metals and then we're, we're told about toes later on that we didn't know about. In verse 41, the toes come up as part of the feet, and there, that's particularly where the clay mi- is mixed in. But that and, and the fact that uh, there's, we think, again, we get fixated on the four kingdoms, which is, is uh, the, way that it's, the way that it's described. But within that fourth kingdom, there's this somewhat subordinate but fifth item that is the toes and the feet that are, that are potter's clay and iron. So there's this uh, kind of complex numerical structure to it. Uh, it's it's a sevenfold statue in some respects. It's an eightfold statue in some respects. It's a fivefold statue in some respects. But uh, Daniel was highlighting the sequence of four kingdoms, um, and I don't I don't know if that those different those complicating num- numerical structures have any relevance to the interpretation of of the image. For example, does it matter that the silver kingdom? is breast and arms. Does that say something about the nature of that kingdom? Or does that just happen to be the next part down from the head? Uh, is there something about the the bronze kingdom that would make it appropriate for it to be, it to be represented by belly and thighs? Those are just questions, but I, I think the, the complications of the of the structure of the, of the statue are intriguing to me. And I hadn't I hadn't really paid attention to that before 
preparing for this podcast. That that all finds a parallel in chapter seven, doesn't it? This idea of things being composed of a an increasing number of parts, which I take to symbolise the dividedness of the kingdom. So it goes from a human figure in chapter seven, these four um, kingdoms, to bear which is raised up on one side so it seems that it has two aspects to it that second kingdom and then you get the leopard with the four wings and finally the sort of ten horned beast and i assume then we're meant to connect the ten horns um with the ten toes of the image so it seems that as the sort of eye follows this image down there is this kind of growing dividedness to the thing and again i think this is all very significant should we say before we go any further? I mean, we're we're perhaps assuming a similar view, at least, of the kingdoms. I mean, um, I, I take the gold to symbolise Babylon, um, the silver to symbolise Medo Persia, and and the next one, the bronze, to be um, Greece at, at the very least. And those, it seems, are at least explicitly named in the book of Daniel. And so, in chapters eight, um, he gives us sort of zoom ins on some of those kingdoms, and he explicitly names them on as Medo-Persia and Greece. Um, then the final fourth kingdom, I guess perhaps we could have some uh, discussion on, at the very least we can say that seems to be the the last kingdom um, in, 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 his, um, in Daniel's list and, and the one which is finally replaced by the kingdom of God. I think it's been traditional, and I agree with this traditional view, that the, the, the three, first three kingdoms are what you enumerated, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and uh, the post-Alexandrian Greek Empire, and then I would t- I would take the fourth kingdom as as Rome, uh, but then that, as you said, that gets complicated not only here but in Daniel seven, because you have uh, some kind of multiple that's going on here in chapter two. It's uh, a fourth kingdom that's strong as iron that crushes and shatters all things, seems to fit with the uh, extent of the Roman Empire, the power of the Roman Empire. Uh, I think the the compl- the the difficulty of um, that fourth kingdom has to do with the feet and the toes, which are the mixed materials, a divided kingdom, both the, the, the strength of iron and the fragility and brittleness of terracotta, as some translate it. And then you have the strange uh, reference that uh, verse 30, 43 seems to refer to some kind of intermixing intermarriage in, in that you saw iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men. So there seems to be some imagery of intermarriage between whatever the clay represents and what the iron represents. In in his commentary, Jim Jordan describes talks about this as a kind of alliance, the the, uh, the kind of uncertain alliance of the strength of the Roman Empire with uh, certain numbers of the Jews, represented by the terracotta and the clay, who are trying to mix with the Romans and yet they don't mix, and that dividedness creates the brittleness and the fragility that leads to the collapse of the entire of the entire statue uh, that's one one possibility I'm, I'm not sure what other uh, what other uh, suggestions have been made about the clay and the ter- the terracotta what what other about the divided kingdom what other suggestions have been offered about it is it the feet and the toes that are composed of iron and terracotta or is it the feet of iron and then the toes the mixture? Well, verse 41 seems to say both feet and toes, and verse 33 the same, feet partly of iron, partly of clay. So uh, I don't know what exactly I said, but it does seem to be both. If I said the opposite, then I'm thinking of verse 42. Yeah. There's the toes are highlighted, but the previous verse talks about feet and toes. So um, 
I had been envisioning that the feet uh, would start out as iron and then the toes would become iron and iron and clay. But I, I don't know if that's it. The total picture is somewhat ambiguous to me. Is there any significance to be found in the 10 toes? Of course, have the 10 heads and um, horns and other things in Revelation. Yeah. And, and, the, and the horns in chapter seven, which are on the fourth of the beasts. Um, so you might have some kind of connection, at least a general numerical connection, perhaps. You don't have any, you don't have a single toe that rises up and becomes greater than all the other toes and displaces three of the toes as you do with the horns later on. But at least you, you might have that numerical connection. <laughs> might be a more complicated image. <laughs> that would be a fun vision to see one of the toes kind of take over the whole foot. <laughs> what do you all think about the, that combination of iron and clay? What's, what's being represented there? Well, I mean, just to throw another option in the mix, if, if I may. I mean, my own inclination where I am in my thoughts on Daniel at the moment is to say that this fourth kingdom is basically what the New Testament identifies as as the world or the present age and so my own inclination would be to see it as something which is bigger and and more encompassing than rome um i mean it, it's it's stressed in at least chapter seven's vision how different this um uh, final uh, entity is it, it seems literally to be a, a, a very different animal and it's unusually um terrifying you know and it's unusually powerful and devastating and it's got these odd details like in chapter seven only the fourth empire is judged and then the previous three become um subject to the reign of the son of man and um uh in 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 this particular example in chapter two um the fourth empire falling seems to trigger the uh collapse of the whole thing and my inclination is just to see this as as the empire of satan basically and to see it as primarily primarily um, a spiritual entity and i guess i would just link that all in with the fact that with jesus life and death and resurrection everything changes and jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven and the demonic forces seem to arise and jesus sees satan fall like lightning and on the back of all that paul starts to talk about this entity the world which is in the control of the evil one and he, he does battles against powers and principalities and uh all the rest of it and and we could go into i guess different bits of it in more detail but my, my inclination is to think that this fourth empire is fundamentally a spiritual um entity which is what the new testament refers to as as the world and at least in some of its phases as being uh in the control of, of the evil one hey james isn't that you know, if it's sat- if it's the satanic kingdom, it's if it's the world, if it's the New Testament understanding, isn't doesn't New Testament pretty much tell us that it is basically the interaction between Rome and Israel? It's the juxtaposition of those two powers of Jerusalem and Rome. Um, and verse forty three does seem to be helpful for interpreting this because it basically makes it personal. These are two groups of people; they mix with one another. By the seed of men, or in marriage, if that's what the metaphor means, and it sure does make a lot of sense then to think about uh, the whole New Testament age, whole New Testament time, where there's this uh, mimetic rivalry between Rome and Jerusalem. It's a love-hate relationship. Um, they exchange. They do literally do intermarriage, 
but they also, uh, you know, Jerusalem wants to be like Rome and Rome hates Jerusalem. And that eventually is what ends this whole time period. I mean, if, if AD 70 is when the stone basically breaks it all up, the, then that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and it's also, of course, in the book of Revelation between the beast, the land, and the sea beast. So uh, this this dichotomy, this bipolar kind of power, clay and iron, uh, mixing together through literal marriage, but also intermarriage in terms of philosophy, ideas, power struggles. That that seems to make sense of, of the vision um, as it's filled out and fulfilled in the New Testament. Seeing some reference to the kingdom or dominion of Satan here, um, it wouldn't seem to me to be out of place. But I wonder whether, again, Revelation might be helpful where we think about the relationship between the dragon and the land, and the sea beast, where the sea beast is a sort of mini-me of the dragon. It has many of the features that we see in the dragon in chapter 12, but it's not to be straightforwardly identified with it. And so I wonder whether we're dealing with something similar here, that there's something of the character of Satan and his kingdom more generally that is coming to the foreground here. And um, that that is not something that erases the fact that this is a specific kingdom, which in this case, I think is Rome. I mean, if if we had someone here who'd written on Revelation, we we could ask them, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it does seem like if you're in, if if you're just removing Rome as being a reference of the fourth kingdom, that does seem to be a jarring shift in the way that the the vision is being interpreted. Because all the others are being linked with all the other parts of the statue are being linked with particular historical empires, and then uh, if the fourth kingdom is just the kingdom of Satan um, and a spiritual entity, then that you're shifting uh, shifting gears pretty dramatically in a way that. It doesn't seem justified by the by the interpretation. And if you get in the light of other passages, you could say Rome, in the time when the stone comes and demolishes the statue, Rome is or is becoming the embodiment of a satanic empire, as as Alistair was describing in Revelation. I think that would work, um, but I, I don't see that in the te- in this text. I see that coming from other kinds mm-hmm. of uh, from other passages. I guess, Dan, uh, uh, James, you were saying that Daniel 7, uh, the, the description of the fourth beast suggests that it's something above and beyond just another just another animal. I think you said something like it's an animal of a completely different kind, a horse of a different color or something. You use some kind of uh, in an unintentional pun, I think. So maybe <laughs> so you were trying to draw on Daniel 7 to, to bring in something something other than just a political reality. Yeah, in, in part, um, it, it does strike me that Daniel 7 particularly stresses how the fourth beast is fundamentally different from what's come before. And I find it hard to fit Rome into that. So that's that's part of my reason for a, a, a shift in gears. I mean, sure, you know, Rome was brutal and fearful and all the rest. But, you know, the Babylonians who went around smashing people's heads open weren't particularly, you know, genteel either. So it, it's hard to kind of think that there is that big a change um, as you go from Greece to Rome, as um, Daniel 7's vision, at, at least, uh, strikes me as, as 
I mean, I guess a, a related question I'd have is if we do go down the Rome view, then what what exactly is falling? What is being smashed, and when is it being smashed? So I don't. My history isn't particularly great, but I don't see any clear sense in which Rome collapsed in like the first century or anything. Well, I would think that the what's what's collapsing is this imperial structure that uh, the times of the Gentiles when. Israel is existing within this, within these, uh, within these empires. The the kind of Israel Empire system that we had been describing before. Uh, Jim Jordan talks about this as the uh, oikimene, and that is that's the structure that it's in, that's in place. And yes, Rome continues on beyond eighty seventy, but what has ended is this combination of Israel and the Gentiles that's been the structure for several hundred years. Uh, from Nebuchadnezzar on, that's what I would say. That's what's collapsing. Okay, so you're seeing the structure specifically as like a, a hybrid, you know. So, um, uh, right. and hence you can have it end in AD seventy. Right. Yeah, and it goes back to the point you made earlier that this is a single statue that all collapses at once. In some sense, everything from Babylon on is part of one grand imperial project, and I, I think historically there's some. There's, uh, you know, there's significant truth to that because uh, Persia defeats Babylon and incorporates Babylon into itself. It it consumes and and uh, and digests Babylon, and Alexander defeats the Persians, uh, and then uh, tramples over previous what was previously Babylonian and Persian territory. And the Romans, um, although they they don't they don't conquer the Persians, but they're extending over the same kind of area. So I think it, so I think that the yeah, historically, you have this kind of process of absorbing the previous empires into the, each successive empire, and theologically, and I'm suggesting that it's all part of one design uh, that that God has set up for the period after the during and after the exile. So, James, on your on your reading, does that help you to uh, to make sense of the clay iron connection? How, how are you reading that? If this is a if you're thinking of this as a spiritual kingdom. Primarily, what's the uh, what would be the so what would be signified there? So I'm I'm then I guess able to take the sense of a, a seed of man as opposed to a seed of Satan in quite a literal sense. So I would see this as some sort of um, demonic and human interaction, which ultimately doesn't last because there is just something fundamentally unmixable about about the the, the two substances. Hmm. Okay. So you're you're back in in uh, in a particular reading of Genesis six. Is that is that where we is that where it goes? The sons of God. Um, and the of I mean, maybe ultimately, um, but obviously in in sort of transitional phases, just as the the way in which Satan um, exerts a, a grip um, upon mankind and and seeks to um, uh, get get a grasp of things through arguments through. You know, powers and principalities, and and all, all the rest of it. Well, Jane, I don't think your interpretation needs to be totally at odds with um, what we're saying here, because you don't have to shoehorn in uh, demons and satanic influence in the New Testament. It's all over the place, and it, in some respects, what's happened at the end of this time period is the Jews, by their um, uh, 
uh, ungodly mixture with whether it was the previous kingdom, the Helen in, in their Hellenizing of uh, their own culture, or Romans with power and concern for honor and authority. Um, all of that has led to a culture in the Gospels, which is infused with demons, demons in synagogues, demon possession, um, and also the um, Pharisees being agent, Pharisees and scribes, the leaders of Jerusalem being agents of Satan, because uh, they go and travel land and sea to make, you know, disciples more sons of hell than than they are. So I, I think it's all it's all right there. And maybe maybe this maybe your comment about the satanic dimension is just something added to what's here in Daniel, you know, two forty three. Yeah, but I definitely think it's, unless we make it sound really different, we've got nothing to argue about, you know. <laughs> I think it's important to bear in mind that elsewhere in Daniel we have sort of angelic figures as princes of these um, empires. And so I don't think that we need to pit these things against each other. Right, right, right. So, and, uh, uh, and I also was curious then, again, James, on your reading, are the, the stone that cuts with, that's cut without hands that comes and demolishes and then grows into a mountain, that's identified as the kingdom of God. Uh, I would say that that is the kingdom that is beginning in the first century with the coming of Christ and the ministry of the apostles, that, that whole period that leads up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of this whole Oikumene order. And then since that, it's been growing uh, into a mountain that will fill the whole earth. Is that is that timing the same as what you're saying? Or are you seeing that uh, is, the, is the stone and the coming of the kingdom uh, pointing more toward an eschatological final kingdom that's arriving on the way you're reading it? I think those are the points at which I start to just sort of fudge, really, and start to say, "Well, it's it's a bit of both, I guess." Um, I I kind of see in the New Testament that the arrival of the kingdom of God can be described in that sort of earth-shattering way, and in terms of toppling powers and gathering up all the evil and throwing it into the furnace and so on, um, and yet at the same time can have that more gradual leaven going through the um lump and a, a more sort of subversive aspect to it so um yeah i i i, I tend to get non-committal at that at that stage well I, I don't think that's that doesn't seem to be non-committal that means um, i think that fits with the what daniel 2 is saying because the the uh the stone strikes there's an apocalyptic moment when the stone comes and strikes the uh, strikes the statue and then it becomes a great mountain that's going to take that doesn't happen instantaneously, presumably. And so there's both the apocalyptic um, intervention and the gradual expansion of the stone into a mountain that I think are they're, they're both in there. Yeah. I wonder if I could just make a general comment on the nature of some of these metals. I, I just find the whole image, if you think about it, as an evolution of all sorts of different kingdoms, just as a, an ingenious picture. You know, you, you've got these metals which as you go down from gold through silver to bronze and, and the rest of it they, they become kind of in increasingly plentiful supply in that gold is very rare but iron is quite easy to get hold of and they also become kind of less pure insofar as 
bronze is a compound and then there is this iron clay composite which is really just two different substances they're not melded together at all and and i kind of relate that to the way in which at least from nebuchadnezzar onwards the kingdoms which come to conquer israel um have this ever-increasing domain to them so sort of Babylon was replaced by Medo-Persia, which spread the boundaries even further afield and took in Egypt and uh, Greece then sort of further still and started to conjoin that more with the um, Western world. And so there is this sort of growing expansiveness to the empires, which, as I say, refers to their plentifulness of supply, but also to their lack of purity, their decrease in purity, because these kingdoms kind of come to encompass more and more um people groups and then hand in hand with that something we previously mentioned is that they they encompass more parts they become more and more divided until you've got what appear to be these 10 sort of co-regents especially if we identify them with kings who give their um, power for a single hour in um, revelation uh, towards the end of revelation so there there is almost then this slightly paradoxical um, trend because there seems to be a, a growing lack of purity and uh, fragility the iron and clay is very weak but at the same time the metals are getting harder you know gold is a soft metal and um, bronze is is harder and iron is the uh, the hardest yet and and you you almost get this sense that there is a, a sort of um a, a weakening nature to these um uh, kingdoms which is is trying to be shored up by this strength of domination and strength of military power and although that sounds paradoxical i mean it's really common to see this just in the world around you as kingdoms um, expand and start to encompass more and more people groups there is this lack of unity and lack of purity which is often solved if in inverted commas by a a really growing authoritarian um, uh desire in kingdoms and it is an attempt to hold kingdoms together which ultimately sort of fails and and as daniel says the whole thing comes crashing down and and so i i although i'm I'm not sort of proposing this now i'm not saying that you know this is now a picture of the eu or or china or something (laughs) but i i'm just saying this picture is is just i think a really insightful view of the evolution of kingdoms and and something you can just see in the world around you i mean even just looking at the uk i mean i I can see this kind of ever increasing sort of diversity um which brings a certain conflict like in in the uk we have forces like um uh very liberal forces which want to have more and more nationalities in uh, the uk and at the same time forces um islamic influences which is going to be very unhappy with some of the secular agenda and and you've got all this which is tries to be covered over with a sort of authoritarian um dictatorial style which is is just yeah bound to collapse one thing i wonder here working with some of your points james is whether there is this movement to more and more comprehension of the world. So you start off with the rarest, precious metal of gold, and then you move to silver, which is more plentiful, and on to bronze, and more compounded, more composite, and trying to take in the whole world in a single statue. This is a a world man, as it were, and it fails. It's ultimately brought down. But then there is something that 
arises in its place that does comprehend the world. It actually achieves what the statue could not. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether we're supposed to see these both as things that are striving towards or work tending towards comprehensiveness in their inclusion of the entire reality. Um, And yet the statue is a failed attempt and the stone that grows into a mountain is the one that will actually succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, uh, James's points about the historical, uh, more contemporary historical situation is fits with that because what, what you have in Britain, what you have in the U.S. is, uh, you know, a very diverse, ethnically diverse population, but no common culture into, w- in, in, into which to incorporate them, no, no common Christian culture as you did have in the past in both countries. And so, yeah, the only the only option is to impose some kind of some kind of unity by force, because there's nothing that uh, nothing that there's no there's no mountain growing from the stone that keeps that keeps the uh, keeps them together. Uh, what, what do you make of the stone? I think one one of the uh, one of the links is uh, would be with uh, uh, David and Goliath. You have a, a a man, a human form made of different metals, uh, corresponding to Goliath with his armor on. And a stone that strikes not the head but the feet, and 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 the, the entire thing falls down. So uh, perhaps there's a there's a background hint that this is a Davidic stone. Jim Jordan has suggested that the stone cut without hands is linked with the altar stones, which are not to be uh, cut by human hands and not to be the 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 temple stones are not to be trimmed and and shaped on the site of the building of the temple. Uh, and so this is an image of. Uh, true worship that comes and shatters the statue and brings it down and and uh, and then scatters it like chaff. Um, a Psalm one reference. Uh, does that does that fit? Do you uh, do you think uh, any, any other idea what why why is why is it a stone uh, and why a stone cut without hands that's doing the doing the work here? The the other connection with Exodus twenty and the altar, the uncut stones of the altar is that it's pretty clear at the end of Exodus 20 that the altar represents a a holy mountain. Um, It's a portable Mount Sinai uh, where animals ascend up into the fiery cloud as Moses did. And so here we have a, a stone that grows and becomes a mountain. And that, that always has seemed to me to be a pretty strong connection. And there's a contrast Perhaps also um, we see elsewhere in the events at Bethel where Jacob gathers together stones in a way that plays off the former former story of Babel where they gather together bricks and they're attempting to build a tower to heaven. But yet you have Jacob's ladder which goes up to heaven and then there is the house of the Lord or the seen as the house of the Lord, the gate of heaven. And I think there's something similar happening here. Babel was a project intending to unite heaven and earth to move man up to heaven and also to include all of man, to be comprehensive, to fill the earth. And the mountain that fills the earth, I think, is a Babel image, but a true Babel. It is the mountain that joins heaven and earth, and it's also one that fills the earth in the way that Babel was an attempt to unite all of mankind, the the great statue has failed and now you have this alternative that's created and it's one of the things that's playing off the background of the language changing within the text there's confusion inability to 
understand the dream, these sorts of things. These are all themes that might remind us of Babel. And then at the end, you're having the stone that grows into a mountain is the true Tower of Babel. It's the Lord's alternative to the false version. Mm, right. Of course, then there's also Jesus as the stone that the builders rejected. Um, right. And then what else? I was just thinking of something else and I forgot about it because someone was texting me. Um, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. yeah. And what about this? The, this image here, this, uh, this uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar as the head and this, uh, the, the kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar will misinterpret this in the next chapter because he creates a similar kind of image and tries to force everyone into conformity. Uh, with his kingdom. And yet at the same time, there's going to be another metal image, another metal man image, who is Jesus uh, that comes out in the book of Revelation. I wonder, Peter, did you, did you draw any connections there in your commentary? I don't remember. I'm sure I did. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been a long, it's been a long time ago. Oh, come on. Well, one interesting thing about the stone is that compared to gold, silver bronze iron it's a pretty cheap material you know and i wonder if there is here a sense in which it, it is the material as you say jeff which is set at naught by by the builders you know it's been viewed as valueless and insignificant and yet it is the thing which ultimately is going to sort of re replace the, the the whole edifice um there's also the interesting detail that the the stone is kind of cut out from a mountain and then grows into a mountain, which is a, a a slightly strange detail. I mean, some have taken the stone cut without human hands as a, a reference to the virgin birth. I think that was quite a common view amongst various church fathers. Um, mm -hmm. But that seems to me to have some value to it. Yeah. So that, but that's what stones do, right? You you, you put them on the earth and they water them. They grow up into a mountain. <laughs> That's the norm. That's the normal <laughs> process. Sure, it is. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar receives this revelation. Uh, he falls on his face. He does homage to Daniel, and then he presents orders to present him with an offering and incense. Is this Nebuchadnezzar honoring Daniel as a kind of god? I mean, you could, I could, you could make a connection with uh, Moses and Pharaoh. Moses is a god to Pharaoh, and Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging that. Not that he's a divine being, but that he's an, uh, a conduit of divine revelation. Or is this is this something that Daniel is going to uh, is given in order to honor the God that has revealed this? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have contact with this God himself, and so he gives the materials for worship to Daniel. In any case, obviously he's he's doing homage to Daniel and to Daniel's God because he recognizes Daniel's God as the God of heaven who reveals mysteries. Uh, and then promotes Daniel, as we've already talked about, to this high position in Babylon. So, do do you see that as an act of worship on Nebuchadnezzar's part, or is it is it something more like he's honoring honoring God and calling on Daniel to honor his God? Or can you just read this as Nebuchadnezzar giving him a tribute, uh, giving that that's minkas? The word used here doesn't necessarily have to have right. a sacrificial meaning. Uh, this could just be him True. giving Daniel and uh, his friends uh, what they deserve, uh, offerings, gifts. and Because at this point, um, 
I think it's pretty clear from the next chapter that that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not quite fully on board with the whole Yahweh program, um, but he will be. He will be. It does seem significant that we've just seen this human figure, this colossus, collapse to the ground, and then immediately afterwards, King Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. who is the head of the thing, um, falls on his face. And I wonder if there Ooh. is just a even if this isn't actually Nebuchadnezzar wholeheartedly getting on board with God's program, I wonder if there's a foreshadow of the fact that he, he will ultimately have to submit to God's vision of what the future days will hold. Going back to your earlier point, James, about the way that some people have seen this as a reference to the virgin birth, I wonder whether it's also possible to see it as a reference to the resurrection. Jesus is laid in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever yet been laid in Luke chapter 23, verse 53. And it seems to me that the connections tend to come more in the context of what arises out of the resurrection. Christ is, as it were, quarried from the um, stone of his tomb, and he comes forth as the cornerstone of a new temple. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I think one of the one of the lessons uh, of this whole chapter, and, and something we've talked about before in an earlier episode in this series, is the 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 uh, encouragement it gives to the people of God in situations of exile. I mean, it is it's an encouragement to the people of Daniel's own time that even though they are in exile, even though the Babylonians have conquered them, still the Lord is at work, and the Lord is raising up. At the end of the chapter, he's raising up Daniel as the chief of the wise men. He's putting Daniel's three friends in charge of portions of the Babylonian Empire, uh, Daniel in the court of the king. And so that's that's an aspect of life in exile. And I think uh, we, we said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, so many Christians today talk about Christians being in exile, cultural exile. And I think there's some important truth to that. But often that is uh, taken as a kind of a defeatist paradigm that because we're in exile we just have to we just have to suffer through uh, we can't expect to ha- exercise any kind of power uh, in this in this in this situation or any kind of influence but uh, Daniel and and most of the exilic stories indicate that the opposite is the case that there's uh, that the Lord is constantly raising people up from uh, uh, from uh, low positions to high positions when his people go into exile so uh, I think um, if it's if it's the case that we're in a kind of cultural exile, we should expect to see uh, people in situations, people people like Daniel, who put in positions of power, who are uh, pursuing the best interests of the church and of the kingdom of God. I think we should also expect that those people will be seen as traitors, <laughs> as no doubt Daniel was, because he's too integrated into the power structures of Babylon, and it's those same power structures, those same. Uh, that same uh, empire that's uh, attacking and destroying Jerusalem. But rather than just kind of hunker down and think that we're defeated and we just have to wait it out, I think that these all these stories give us hope and an expectation that the Lord is going to raise people into positions of prominence uh, and they're going to uh, provide protect, not just protection, but a kind of triumph even in the midst of exile. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.